1: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
2: All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases,
3: globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if
2: you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner. A podcast about the love of maps brought
4: to you by Roy Field-Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show.
3: Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Roy Field-Brown, who is 43 degrees and point. 36 uh, minutes north and 79 degrees 46.12 degrees west which means I am in Burlington hey you know what Claire what do you know what I am it's official
5: it's official we have our
3: labels now
5: okay I hear your pout. is that correct (laughs)
3: wrong podcast wrong (laughs) podcast Claire I am I am a Tanzania I am a Tanzania, folks, and we'll explain to you in a little while why I'm a Tanzania after we introduce Claire, my flame headed mapaholic friend. Uh, Claire Asprey, where are you today? I
5: am at 52.16 north and 0.5 west. Is it west? I should know that if I'm a mapaholic.
2: Yeah, it is um, west. And yeah, I yeah.
5: am Colombia.
3: Ooh. Now, we we were kind of went through this a couple of podcasts ago, didn't we? Uh, but we have people actually listen to what we say and actually do what we say, even if I don't actually do what we say, which is to put up a whole big list of national days um, on mapcorner.space dot space, and then basically say, right, wherever your birthday is, uh, pick the map, pick the national day which is closest to it. So we have two listeners that. Um, the salutation is I am a whatever. So that was a proper joy. So we have our own little map corner idioms now, and that's what we like. But folks, you're probably wondering what this is. Map Corner is a podcast dedicated to the love of maps and all things cartophilic. So, if Peters is your projection. You're in the right place. Now, Claire, today we're looking at favourite places, aren't we? We are, and
5: uh, we will have calls from Timothy, Dan, and Ken about places that they appreciate, which I'm looking forward to hearing.
3: Mm. And folks, don't forget you can contribute to this show. We actually need you to contribute to this show because otherwise, it's just like me basically talking over Claire's very good points and trying to get my secondary points kind of in. Uh, and you do that by going to MapCorner.space and clicking on the speak pipe tab on the right so we need you we need your views your thoughts your questions about the world of uh geographic observations and all that malarkey and just kind of travel and maps uh, to keep the show going on this episode we hear from dave amos who is um, one of these clever people that's like tearing up a storm on youtube and actually he's a town planner but um one of these kind of engaging and approachable types as well uh we have an audio postcard which is from me uh which is my bus journey from dubrovnik to sarajevo and um what's this in red i see claire
5: we have a new feature which is Map Fact of the Month. Uh, this month I've picked the Map Fact but uh, absolutely this is a slot that's open to uh, other people who are interested in the podcast and can de- and, uh, can suggest their own Map Fact of the Month uh, because uh, it'd be nice to crowdsource some of those from our knowledgeable fan base.
3: Is that because you're lazy and you can't be fussed to do it by yourself?
5: You know, when you point a finger at someone, there are three pointing back at yourself. That's
3: very true, Claire. (laughs) It's the reason why I don't do this show by myself, because I am lazy. (laughs) And of course, we have listener calls. And then we end up with a roundup of uh, stuff that we talk about on Facebook and the Twitters. But first, it's me speaking to Dave Amos about City Beautiful. I spend a lot of time, um, as as a lot of us do, kind of noodling around on the internet. And invariably, you end up on YouTube. And the great things about YouTube is that all your proclivities, all your interests, all your dark, dark, dark secrets, you know, there's a little hole for them. There's a place for them on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And of course, mine is maps and mapping. But actually, apart from just maps and mapping, uh, Mr. Amos, I'm actually really into human geography. City planning that for me is mm-hmm. equivalent to my uh, x-rated content you can <laughs> I can just cuddle up with my laptop and look at a street planner let's say Berlin and go yeah how did you come by the idea of not only um, having probably the most foremost YouTube channel to do with urban geography and, and planning how did you fall into this whole sphere first off
4: yeah okay that's yeah that's a good question that's really Bringing it way back to the beginning, I was always a kid who just really liked cities and maps and kind of that sort of thing. I actually grew up in a really small town, far from any city, so I Mm -hmm. think cities always seem sort of exotic and exciting and interesting. Um, So when I first chance I got when I could go to college, I went to study cities, and I basically just never stopped. So I got an undergraduate degree, a couple graduate degrees, and now I'm getting my PhD in city planning. Um, I was also a planner in there as well. Uh, so I wasn't totally in academia. So I just love mm-hmm. cities. I love learning about them. It's one of my favorite things to do. And when I was actually a practicing planner, oftentimes we had to have meetings with committees and commissions and brief them on planning topics. You know, like a lot of these citizen committees, they don't know the first thing about complete streets or healthy communities or some of the things that planners talk about course we had to develop presentations to talk to them about it but you know we were always like wow I wish there was just like a YouTube video we could show them uh mm-hmm. you know to get the the point across like you know say before the meeting just go watch this video and then you'll kind of be briefed on the topic already and this was like you know maybe like oh, like 4 or 5 years ago and there just wasn't that content on YouTube I mean you mentioned that there's videos for every niche but at the time there wasn't a ton of city planning content on YouTube and I sort of just mentally filed that away and then a few years later when I was um getting my phd i was teaching introduction to city planning for undergraduates and when i was putting the lectures together i was like well you know a lot of this would be really interesting to not just undergraduates but the general public and i'm already developing this content anyway like maybe this would actually be something that like could be a video like uh, or several videos so i sat down and just spent like t- like an embarrassingly long amount of time to make my first video like like a few months I didn't know what I was doing at all. I had no video experience and I released it on like January 1st, 2017. I was committed to doing one video per month at least from that point out and I've I've achieved that. I actually post videos now every two weeks. So I've doubled that pace oh, wow. essentially. So all right. yeah, that's how I got... I mean, it's actually a pretty straightforward route. It's not really like a winding route. I just love city planning and just kept going and <laughs> now here I am, I guess.
2: So l- look
3: looking at your kind of like bio, like you have four degrees like you're a proper hardcore nerd aren't you you're deep into this like how does somebody end up with four degrees and like i know you're just about to finish your phd but like yeah
4: no i know that's something, a question my wife asks too <laughs> um, yeah no so well i mean i got my undergraduate degree in urban studies after college i you know i went into the nonprofit sector um and then you know a few years after i was working i thought well planning's great But I've always also been interested in architecture. Like The the two of them are very related fields, obviously. Mm. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to go back to graduate school, get a degree in architecture, and become an architect. So I did that. I mean, I think that's a pretty common thing to do for folks in graduate school. They're kind of pursuing a career ambition. Uh, A couple years into graduate school, I realized architecture is great but I don't know if I'm really much of an architect like it's not my actually not my thing now that I've been doing it why not what, what was it about that made you think mm, maybe this isn't for me I mean I think like, with every profession there's parts of it you like and parts of it you don't like and for me like there were things I didn't like about architecture especially like the scale like mm-hmm. architects think about the building and then oftentimes kind of things smaller really tiny things things in the building itself and my mind always went bigger like I would want to think about the building but then its relationship to kind of the city as a whole like I just Mm -hmm. couldn't get myself to think about like a door jam when I really want to be thinking about the neighborhood or the or the community uh halfway through my degree I was like well I don't want to quit like I want to finish this degree I'm two years into a three-year degree but I would just tack on another masters in planning it's like so i just added one more year to get another master so i ended up with two masters there but they're sort of like a joint degree after that i went to be a planner so i thought well i'm done with school for good i never want to go back to school i mean i remember thinking that two years after i leaving whoa, 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 i stop. was like where, where was that first job so it's in Sa- it was in Sacramento. I, w- I was at the University of Oregon for my master's. I went, moved to Sacramento mm-hmm. and I got a job as a land use planner. Um, okay. So you,
3: like, you roll into Sacramento and you look at the horizon. You think, I am going to make this town beautiful. I am going to be the most influential and significant person in the history of Sam- uh, Sacramento. That's what you thought.
4: That is not what I thought. <laughs> because, well, first of all, I'm not, I don't really think like that but also i'm so i was a cons- yeah, sure, but but uh, come on though, Dave. surely behind every
3: urban planner is a little napoleon oh, so dare i say a little napoleon the third who transformed the center of paris you know it's a case of i'm gonna uh, make this city livable walkable workable but also majestic
4: I mean, I think there's definitely a sense among planners, me included, that like we want to make a positive contribution to the community. So like being a planner mm-hmm. is a very direct way to do that. But the other reason I wasn't thinking that is that my job was actually as a consultant planner. So I actually never worked for the city of Sacramento. So uh-huh. even though I was based in Sacramento, I would be hired by other communities in the area to work on their long range plans when they're thinking 20 30 years out like what do they want their community to be like they would hire my firm to help them with that process so i actually didn't work in sacramento even though i I sort of did actually physically go to work in sacramento and getting to see sort of each Uh, each of these different issues are
3: you you saying you didn't work in sacramento because sacramento was just was boring it is boring isn't it i know let's be honest about it Of all of the cities in the great state of California, Sacramento, visually and in terms of its entertainment, is not the most dynamic.
4: So I think everybody who has not lived in Sacramento has the impression that Sacramento just sucks. But everybody who's lived in Sacramento actually thinks it's a pretty good city. Definitely skeptical moving to Sacramento, but now I do actually really like it it's a really good family town so like you're, you bring up the entertainment options like yeah like i guess like if you're like into clubbing or partying or something like it's probably mm. not the best city but i already had a kid at that point and now i have two more so like i like sacramento i think people should give it a shot but
3: <laughs> okay all right i, I hear you're, you're invested in sacramento so you, you can't talk smack about it i hear that
4: completely <laughs> but tell
3: us about the first thing that you had to do when you're a town planner
4: I was working um, in the city of Gilroy, which is actually in the South Bay area, on their general mm-hmm. plan. So that's the, yeah. a project I was very invested in through my time um, as a consultant land use planner. So we got the job to work on their plan just when I was hired. Um, so it worked out really well. You know, Getting feedback from the community about what their vision for their community is going to be like in the year 2040. That was our time horizon 2040. Mm-hmm. And then sort of drafting like land use alternatives. Like, How do you want to grow? Do you want to grow kind of up? kind of through infill development or do you want to kind of grow out like a more of a sprawling development uh that's what i did in gilroy and i helped out on a couple of other plans as well so it's it's interesting you talked about building up or
3: building out and being a european spending time in in your wonderful country that is one of the big differences between american cities american towns and european ones is that Mm -hmm. generally ours are denser generally not always but generally so we even though our buildings aren't that tall on average they must be taller um because you guys go in more for sprawl and the one thing being an urbanist about density over sprawl is that you you're much more attracted towards density aren't you there's something about buildings being closer together which mean there are more people, there is more traffic, there is more hustle and bustle, which makes a place appear lively, dynamic and exciting. One of the things I find really fascinating about watching your videos is that you go through the history of how American cities have developed the way that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't you go back and kind of explain the various development stages of American cities' development Um And then we can maybe compare and contrast that with with European cities, which have in theory been around an eon longer.
4: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so I think the way I think of the history of U.S. cities is really a relationship between land use and transportation. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in the in the beginning, uh, in the colonial period and then the period right after. Cities in the United States resembled in a lot of ways cities in Europe because they were very walkable places. You had to have a city dense enough so that people could walk to their destinations because at the time you had horses, but not everybody had a horse, of course. (laughs) And, uh, you know, things like uh, omnibuses and like kind of precursors to the streetcar, like horse-drawn streetcars were just not very fast. They're not efficient. Mm -hmm. So you had to be able to walk. So you ended up with very dense cities I think one thing that's slightly different from a lot of European cities, because U.S. cities were sort of founded from scratch in the 17th and 18th century, there was more attention paid to how the city would be laid out. So you end up with cities with more grid patterns because these colonists would come and they say, well, we know we need a city here. Uh What is the most efficient way to lay it out? You know, and they would put up a grid where, you know, European cities, they sort of evolved for over hundreds or a thousand or more years so they don't sort of have the benefit of like that foresight, like, Oh, we know this is going to be a big city. Let's, let's plan accordingly. So that's a big difference. I think once you start getting into, um, You know, the streetcar suburb era from about the 1910s to 1930s, the U.S. is growing really rapidly. I mean, a lot of the in the 19th century, there's been just so much immigration to the United States. It's growing so fast. The streetcar is actually one of the the reasons that we have so much sprawl. I think a lot of people peg it to the car, which is absolutely true. But the streetcar was that precursor where you saw a lot of people kind of moving out into single family homes in the suburbs just because the U.S. cities were growing so fast at that time, in part due to the, the immigration and then, of course, you have the uh, era of the automobile and that changes everything. And I think, you know, the U.S. is an interesting place geographically in that, again, like it was so Vast, and there was relatively few people living there. Of course, we have indigenous people, but like we have just so much vast, unspoiled land. Like, what is preventing us from growing out in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Especially now that we have the car; it's so easy to you know access that land. You know, cars are just sort of all about freedom, and the USA is all about freedom, right? So we just sort of adopted the car; it sort of suited our lifestyle and our geography in a way that in Europe it didn't quite. I mean. Uh, even like, you know, U.S. downtowns um, were often kind of had those wider streets, that grid patterns, which actually lent itself to cars pretty well, um, where European cities, the, the center of the city is often very difficult to get cars in there in any sort of efficient way. So mm-hmm. and that's sort of the the really broad strokes of how we ended up with cities with more sprawl than in Europe. Um, there are other factors there as well. I mean, we certainly have a planning infrastructure that sort of supported the idea of sprawl. I mean, back in the nineteen 19- Teens, nineteen twenties, you know the you know cities across the world, not just in the U.S., were seen as kind of dark, dirty, dangerous places. Mm. Um, and planners were like, "Well, if we just move everybody out to the suburbs, it's going to be fresh air and green space and a home for everyone." Like that's seen as a positive, that's an improvement to people's quality of life. So let's sort of come up with ways to support that exodus from the city as much as possible because it solves a lot of problems. That completely is the story
3: of my hometown, Birmingham, in, in the UK. So it's not the complete story. Uh, the <laughs> city was uh, already a city in 1086. No, it wasn't a city. It was a place in 1086. So it's not the complete yeah. story. But in the 1950s, the, the good burgers, the councilors of Birmingham said um, that, yeah, that cities are dark, dank places and everyone's going to live on the edge. So we, we copied the American model that was prevalent at the time and, mm-hmm. and built wide motorways or freeways as you'd call them into the city divided up neighborhoods and of course it's was always the poorer neighborhoods that got knocked down to accommodate right. them could you speak to some of the more egregious examples of urban regeneration 1950s and 60s style and maybe how certain neighbourhoods in various American cities got displaced to make way for these freeways into the city that accommodated the car and then how that changed the nature of that city racially, demographically, economically.
4: Yeah I that's a story that's true in almost every American city. The Interstate Highway Act in like 1956, I believe, mm-hmm. gave all sorts of funding to state governments to build as many freeways as as they wanted. It was like for every $1 the state funded for freeways, the federal government would pitch in $9. I mean, it was an incredible sum of money. Wow. And a lot of that, of course, went to interstate highways or highways that would go kind of from the outside of one city to the outside of another city. But, of course, they also went into the central cities, as you mentioned. And, you know, I think... The story of how freeways got jammed into downtowns, you know, both in the United States and in England, is a sort of a story of how planners and and bureaucrats can make something sound really reasonable, but it's actually just horrific. The you mentioned that freeways often went into low-income neighborhoods, and that's absolutely true. But of course, they would justify that by saying this is a good use of taxpayer money, right? If we were to destroy upper-income homes, it would cost so much more money for us Mm. to kind of acquire that property and then build it through those upper income neighborhoods, right? So, of course, we go through the lower income neighborhoods. It's just, you know, it's it's smart dollars and cents, right? Saving money, it's a more efficient way of getting that highway in there. But, of course, those are the people who can least afford to be displaced by a freeway. So, I think it's always a good lesson in being careful and listening to what decision makers are saying. Like, it may seem reasonable, but under the surface, it's actually far worse, Urban freeways, I think, might be the single worst thing that has happened to American cities. I would say that's almost an uncontested truth. You destroy the low-income neighborhoods, but not all of them. And then, of course, the the, the folks who remain are then directly in the path or adjacent to a highway. And those places throw off all sorts of dangerous particulate matter and smog, which makes their quality of life worse. The sound is actually in a form of pollution, which is detrimental to their quality of life. Of course, as you also say that they, they divided up neighborhoods. There's just so many ills that are associated with these freeways. And then I was recently in Vancouver, Canada, and they are a city that did not allow freeways to be built within its city limits. Mm -hmm. And the difference is stark. The city feels much more of a cohesive place, a friendlier place. The land values there kind of highlight how attractive a city like that actually can be today because it's such an expensive city to live in. And I think partly because of the choices they made in the 1950s and 1960s by not allowing freeways into the city.
3: Mm. State that example of Vancouver, because Vancouver is always cited as one of the most livable, most beautiful of cities in the world. It's funny, I I went to Seattle for the first time just last year and living in the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. just remarked on how clean the streets were in Seattle and how Seattle was was just very beautiful. I I was totally bowled over by Seattle Mm -hmm. and everybody said, but you haven't been to Vancouver. Like, that, was, that yeah. was the answer. Everybody said, you ain't been to Vancouver. The, the one thing that I, I, that I really have begun to understand is that's how important the luck of the draw is in terms of when cities decided that they need to upgrade, so to speak. And if you decided that you needed to do it in the 50s and the 60s, come the 1990s, you've realised you've made a big mistake. So did Vancouver, were they really conscious... Back in the 1950s and 60s, when I presume the Canadian government said, hey, we're going to have this highway building program, were they really conscious that says, no, this cannot go into the city? Or did they just say, oh, we just want it to go to the edge, which then just happened then
4: 30, 40 years later to be the right decision? I think that it still required a lot of smart foresight from Vancouver uh, officials or decision makers to say, no, we don't want freeways in the city, you know, when every North American city was getting these freeways, it was seen as the status quo. You must have it for the, the for the sake no, it's of a your status symbol, economy. wasn't it? It's a what? status.
3: It was a status symbol at the time. you are shown that you're forward thinking, thrusting, modern, and you're future proofing your city because the car was going to be the symbol, as you said, of freedom. It's a symbol of democratizing the workforce. So you have individual agency to go wherever you want, etc. I must admit, if I was a town planner back then, I'd have been building freeways all over cities. I, I I would have been sucked in. I wouldn't have had that foresight,
4: to be honest. Yeah, right. I mean, like the, the freeways at the time were, again, that symbol of freedom, right? Like, yeah, it's all about the car and central cities didn't want to be left behind. They saw that all these folks were moving to the suburbs. All the businesses were going to the suburbs, right? You have these suburban mm-hmm. office parks taking jobs away from downtown. So the freeways are seen as a way of, like you said, future proofing or sort of competing against the suburbs to bring people downtown. But the folks at Vancouver did uh, have foresight, and they I think they saw the possible downsides to a freeway in a place like San Francisco realized kind of halfway through the development of yeah. their system that it was a bad idea, and they put a stop to it, you know, to their credit because a lot of cities did not. They just kept going till all the freeways were built. and Vancouver was just a rare case where they managed it even before they built freeways to stop it. Um, mm. But it, that's why I think it's such an interesting city to look at um, because it's uh, there are so few examples of cities like that here in, in North America
3: but you sir as well as being eminent on youtube and uh, the town planner that re- remodeled sacramento you you have some other kind of like um accolades don't you so um rethinking streets um I mentioned this to a town planning friend of mine and he got all very giddy and excited that I was going to be speaking to you. Uh, So for people that don't know about Rethinking Streets, um, what exactly is it and why is it that uh, your peers in your industry um, hold it in such great regard, sir? Well, don't be be modest. You're American. So just be fulsome and say, yep, I I did that. And and it's the schnizzle.
4: Go on. I'm I'm from a small town in the Midwest. We're actually not allowed to receive compliments. That's a rule. (laughs) Uh, No. Uh, So Rethinking Streets uh, is, there are two guides, design guides. You can get them Mm -hmm. for free PDFs at RethinkingStreets.com. You can download those. And what they are, um, are basically a collection of case studies of cities that have gone into a street and said, you know, these can work better than uh, just the car oriented um, status quo. And they went through and they actually made the change. They redeveloped the street, redesigned the street. And then in many cases have since actually measured the effect of that change. And what we find is that almost uh, actually every single one in the book has seen a positive change in their streets uh, safety or the neighborhood uh, has improved as a result of that redesign. So, uh one of the things that we wanted to do, so when I was even a planner, mm-hmm. uh when I was looking at corridors, like redesigning a corridor, it's hard to imagine what the corridor could be someday, right? You know that it's a bad corridor, like this this road stinks, there's too much traffic, now enough people biking and walking, but how do we redesign it? And what we did was we collected all of these case studies from all over the US and Canada and we said, here's cities who have done the exact project that you're thinking about doing, and look, the world did not end. Uh things actually got better. Uh, and here's how you can use this to sell the project in your community. So that's the point of it is to basically catalyze new projects in cities around the country by showing that uh, it has been done and it's been done and nothing bad has happened.
3: So give us a couple of examples of how you you rethink remodel streets. Give us two practical solutions to let's say to a typical uh western american uh street in a
4: town. Yeah, so so I should mentioned there are two books. So one is Rethinking Streets and one is Rethinking Streets for Bikes. So the Rethinking Streets book is all about really common sense, practical solutions. And Rethinking Streets for Bikes is sort of best practices, like the best of the best. So to Mm -hmm. give an example from the the Rethinking Streets kind of common sense solutions, one really basic common sense way to change a street is called a road diet. And we feature a bunch of these in the book. And what a road diet is, is you often have in cities um, a a configuration where there's two car lanes going in each direction. OK. Mm-hmm. No median. There's just like two lanes of traffic in each direction. And those are actually very central dangerous
3: reservation for our English listeners. What's that? You, what you call a medium, we call a central reservation. Sure.
4: Yes. So those are actually very dangerous streets because what you have is let's say you're on that street mm-hmm. and uh you're going down the street and you want to turn left across the other two lanes, Mm -hmm. you have to stop and wait for the cars to clear before you can kind of turn into the driveway on the other side of the street. Right. And that's actually a really dangerous condition because what you're doing is you're clogging up one lane and if somebody doesn't see you, they may bump into you and you're trying to cross two lanes of traffic as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. And it's a dangerous situation. Um, So what road diets do is they take the four lanes. So two lanes in each direction and change it. So it's only one lane in each direction. And in the middle, there's a, a, what's called a two-way right turn lane or a central, a central turn lane. Yeah. And then oftentimes there's actually space left over for a bike lane on the far ends of the, of the roadway. So what you have then is, uh, when you want to make a left-hand turn or I guess right-hand turn, if you're in England, you would go, you would get into the central lane and it would be a safe spot for you. It'd take you out of the flow of traffic. And then you only have to cross one lane to get to your driveway or, or whatever street you're turning onto. And the, the extra cool thing about this, From the point of view of a driver is it actually carries just as much traffic as two lanes in each direction, uh, even though it's only one lane in each direction, because there are so many times when people were stopping in one of those lanes to turn left Uh, or turn right, that it creates traffic jams. Yeah, So it eliminates the traffic jams. Uh, You get kind of a narrower street and you get bike lanes. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, all in all, it's just a better condition, and it's a really easy thing to do. All you have to do is like, put new paint down, and you have this new street design. So that's why it's, it's so, been so popular in the United States. Lots of streets are converting from uh, that old kind of terrible roadway to this road diet.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Going back to something you said towards the start of our chat, which mm-hmm. so I was really
3: fascinated by, it, and you talked about the architect wanting to basically design a building. And then the town planner who has more of a vision for the whole of the city or the town. One thing which is really marked for me is that when town planners realise that big mistakes have been made, and the classic example in the UK is my hometown of Birmingham. Mm -hmm. Uh, just, Just to recap, up until the late 1970s, its GDP per household was higher than that of London. And it was very much the economic engine of the UK, but very much in a very unstated way, in a very Midwestern way, really. Mm -hmm. Very understated. And what Birmingham didn't have, which was, say, like a Detroit had, or um, another American city, was one industry which it was famed for. It was called the City of a Thousand Trades, which in a way was bad for branding. It wasn't good for branding. It was bad for branding. So because Birmingham was so rich and the Second World War has just happened, the uh, the UK government basically said, well, the Germans have bombed a few of our cities. This gives us a great excuse to remodel our cities. We all know that the car is going to be the future. Look at America.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: We, can, we can do a whole lot of slum clearance at the same time. Laudable, understandable thought processes of the time. And because Birmingham was so rich and Birmingham was a relative i say relative london was magnitudes larger but birmingham was richer per household that they decided to remodel birmingham first and put uh motorways or freeways whatever you want to call them straight into the city center um create massive highways within the city And they deliberately depopulated the city of Birmingham, which sounds like a conspiracy theory, but there's government papers saying we're going to Mm -hmm. take down the population by 200,000 because people are going to drive into Birmingham to to go and work. That's a very long-winded wind-up for me to say this. (laughs) What's really surprised me about the town planners of Birmingham now who are trying to get the inner core, the downtown as you call it, much more breathable, more pedestrian and they've had some stunning successes in certain areas is that there's a lack of actual foresight and modeling for new developments and how they're going to work together and actually how the size of that road is going to feel with lots of vacant lots undeveloped bits of land in English usage (laughs) and or disjointed development. So there's there's all these great plans that look great on paper, but it doesn't feel to come almost back 360 necessarily that dense and that organic. That's the word I'm searching for. There's a development here, there's a development there, and whatever. And you say to yourself, if there was some really good 3D modelling, people would have figured this out before as opposed to them going five years after this development, okay, now we need to do something with this road. Uh, to make it narrower or, or whatever, straighten this road. So, building, building development is ease as opposed to having these weird angles and, and stuff. So, talk to me about that. And I appreciate I could talk to you forever, but I've got the rest of a show to do. So, no pressure on you, sir.
4: Yeah, you brought up like 10 good points. So, I'm going to try to <laughs> address as many of those <laughs> as I can because it is all really fascinating. I always find that cities grow best when they grow slowly. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as a building is added, as a new development is added, they can then kind of look around and respond to what's there and mm-hmm. more, more kind of easily fit into what the fabric is as it's developing. But when you have situations where you are kind of rebuilding an entire section of a city, either through urban renewal here in the United States or kind of after World War II in Europe, uh, we always like to say that we basically bombed our own inner cities uh, <laughs>
2: kind
4: of voluntarily to build, uh, you know, what you guys did in Europe. Uh, that's when you run into problems because you know you have these like large areas of of you know undeveloped or soon to be undeveloped land and you have to figure out how to turn that into an urban space that's lively and interesting and it's really hard to do from the drawing board it's it's something that needs to happen slowly so i'm always a little bit skeptical when you see large projects like that because it's it's just tough you mentioned like you kind know, of 3D modeling and that I, th- I think people are starting to use those advanced technologies more to understand kind of what things are actually going to look like in the future planners do really try to think hard about what is the tra- what are the traffic impacts going to be what are the school impacts going to be things like that i mean those are things people consider whether or not they you know kind of pan out in the end is, is A different story, bringing it back to Vancouver, the kind of central area of Vancouver, the Falls Creek area, Mm -hmm. the city had a strong vision for what they wanted that area to look like, how they wanted it to function. And uh, they articulated that in a very strong plan that they stuck to, and they ended up with an urban area that basically lived up to their expectations. So I think planners, if they are very diligent and rigorous and hold themselves to their plans, which can be difficult because, you know, political regimes change through time and things like that. But if you can do it uh, well, you can end up with a city that is successful, even if it's growing quickly, but it's just challenging and the exception to the rule, unfortunately, as you kind of brought up.
3: Last question. Do cities that we think has been livable, pleasant, beautiful, majestic, do they always have to be expensive places to live?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's kind of a folly to think of, like, what city is the most successful or best or most livable. It's impossible to kind of quantify or or rank cities like that. Mm -hmm. Anytime you evaluate a city, you have to think about not just, like, how is it for the the richest person of a city, but how is it for the, the lower class? How are they taking care of their homeless population? Things like that. Places like Vancouver or Seattle, Uh, San Francisco, very desirable places. And they're really great, especially if you are upper income, but they can be very challenging places if you're not. And um, I think that there are cities out there that do better jobs of kind of being attainable uh, places to live for lower and middle classes that don't get credit because they're not as flashy, but they are actually doing a better job kind of broadly. Uh, Places like a a Minneapolis St. Paul, places like that, where, you know, they're a little bit off the beaten path. They may don't have the the spectacular beauty of a Vancouver with the setting with like Whistler and all that stuff. Mm. But they are, you know, a place where you can still afford housing. The economy is humming along. There's a great art scene. We need to kind of have those cities in the conversation as well in terms of livability. And it can't just be about sort of Golden Gate Bridge and tech companies and things like that when we're talking about what's a livable city.
3: Uh, Mr. Amos, you're going to have to tell us what your YouTube channel is.
4: Yes. So my YouTube channel is called city beautiful and you can find it at youtube.com slash city beautiful, all things city planning.
3: (laughs) I'm looking forward to you doing my hometown of Birmingham. Someday. (laughs) Good, good. Dave Amos. Thank you for coming on to
4: map corner. Well, thank you for having me. It's great. So don't forget folks, um, go
3: on to YouTube and type in city beautiful. And what Dave does is absolutely brilliant. He takes you to cities in North America and around the world and explains exactly how they work and uh, and how those cities actually function so that's city beautiful on youtube now um here is me catching a bus from dubrovnik to sarajevo each city each town has its own DNA these are customs and these are culture Sarajevo historically sat on the very edge of Turkish rule in Europe unlike the Serbs the Croats or the Bulgarians the Bosnians accepted Islam when the Turks came this has left the city and Bosnia as an island of Islam Sarajevo the city is dotted with tall minarets that prick the sky. Its urban sprawl is pleasingly chaotic with Victorian buildings and tight-laned markets. There is another way to measure its DNA, to see it writ large in front of you. So the legacy of the Ottoman Empire has left an indelible mark on Sarajevo and Bosnia's food. This can be seen in its appreciation for Turkish coffee, which is served in any cafe, its love of baklava and other Turkish delights. But then you see it when you go into a Bosnian home, they all come resplendent with Turkish rugs and whitewashed walls. Bosnia, and in particular Sarajevo, was always known for its pluralism, and tolerance of people from all religions. It's somewhat marked that since the war in the early 90s that there has been a, a resurgence of its Muslim identity of the Bosniak people. That is reflected in women who are now starting to cover up, whether it is by niqab or hijab, something that older Bosnians, older members of this city find somewhat surprising sarajevo has the scars of war it wears these pot marks because of the war that took place in the early 90s between the serbs and the bosnians after the collapse of yugoslavia many buildings and i mean many buildings to this day are littered with the detritus of this conflict to this day sarajevo has never quite recovered but it wears these scars to never forget it's dead I tell you what, Claire, that trip for me going to go into Sarajevo was yeah. it was a timely echo of this week's theme which is
2: a uh, favorite places because my favorite. as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a b2b marketer you should use linkedin ads linkedin has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan
6: Reynolds.
4: At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
3: definitely the son or the daughter of that um huge 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 city feel those influences as i said yeah. within the piece oh you have been to the balkans
5: no but i had a colleague at work went to istanbul a couple of weeks ago and i was really jealous because I, I would really love to go i just think it's got a it's, just, it's got a sort of reputation as just a place with some really great atmosphere and which very much is of itself it's got a particular character i think and yeah, that was definitely be mm. on my list of places to visit.
3: Well, I tell you what. Why don't we go on to the calls first, and let's hear what Dan has to say about his favourite place, and then uh, we can discuss our own after. Okay. Hi, this is Dan. Just called about my favourite place, which is where I live in Mearsbrook in the south of Sheffield. You can sit at the top of Mearsbrook Park and look out over the whole city and see churches. Cathedrals, the mosque, schools, college, university, semi so many detached streets, terraced housing beyond, and then the Peak District beyond that. So fantastic view looking like a map spread out in front of you. The, the uh, place Mearsbrook takes its name from the fact that it was a boundary between the ancient Kingdom of Mercia and Umbria as well, so it's always felt a bit of a liminal space on a border between two places. Okay. Oh, I meant to say uh, my date of birth gives me uh, the same date as the Constitution Day of Romania. Mm. Well done Dan. Yeah, bit of a choppy call. Was it your fault? I think technology um, almost tried to scupper you, but but you didn't let it get the better of you, Dan. So well done to you, sir. Um and I love this thing about Sheffield
5: because I I did well, I did my housing postgraduate qualification in Sheffield and uh It's a city of seven hills, like Rome, and they do make quite a lot of fuss about that. Uh, But actually, there are so Mm. many places around Sheffield where you can just see the whole town, more or less. If you're sort of standing on the edge of the town, you're you're generally up on a very high point, and you can see it all laid in front of you. Um, I wasn't anywhere as nice-sounding as as Mearsbrook. I I did tours of Norfolk Park uh, during a major regeneration programme, which is... uh, perhaps not quite so beautiful, but um, absolutely uh, it was really interesting to see how the topography makes a town as well uh, and, and the fact mm. that the hills in Sheffield are a really significant part of the character of the place.
3: Mm. You're, you're, I've only been to Sheffield maybe about three times, but you are completely right that they, they're forever saying they're on seven hills just like Rome. And But also Sheffield is kind of slightly one of those unusual uk cities in that it's it's much bigger than you'd actually think in terms of its cultural footprint and i put yeah. my hometown of birmingham in 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 that uh, bracket as well that birmingham definitely in terms of sheer size is the second city of the uk but its cultural footprint kind of belies that fact whereas edinburgh which is much smaller glasgow um even liverpool to a, to a degree have much more of um an image within the uk and definitely sheffield yeah. is is one of those uh, one of those uk cities where people go yeah it's kind of yorkshire but kind of what do they do it's not you know we haven't had uh, too many soap operas come out of sheffield or films or any, anything like that i'm trying to think of the the full monty was kind of south yorkshire wasn't it
5: yeah, but Sheffield's known for its music, isn't it? So you've got some very significant
3: you're going, musicians come well, out. Of the Sheffield. Human League in Heaven seventeen. Pulp. Mm.
5: Well yeah. the Sheffield, aren't they? And Elbow, aren't they? Sheffield? Uh, but
3: okay, right. And and you're you're right. Um those bands have come out, out of there. I, I must admit I don't know I don't know Elbow from from me Elbow. Boom, boom. But um in terms of you know the narrative of the UK, right? I'd still say that fundamentally Sheffield is kind of you know blank-ish-ish. You know, steel and steel and knives, blades. That's they're, steel. That's what they kind of kind of were, were famous for back in the day.
5: I'm sure Dan, but, Dan will be uh, back on, you mean, just telling you're poorly informed about the the joys of Sheffield. <laughs>
3: <laughs> please do we need all the calls we can get down you know i say this stuff just to get a response you know most of the time but you <laughs> did not paint um a wonderful picture of mearsbrook and yeah. um i must admit i'm looking at it on google street view now and uh rows of of tight uh kind of uh housing with a wonderful park just behind it and then you got bishop's house just to, to the one corner and um it looks like, dare I say, it, like a, tr- a very traditional uh, yeah. English kind of street pattern. Very yeah. good indeed, sir. Uh, thank you for the call, and also thank you for being the first listener of Map Corner, who um, did the
1: salutation, got it right, nailed it. Now it's time for Timothy. Hello, Claire. Hello, Royfield. My name is Timothy. I am in, in Afghanistan from Long Branch, New Jersey. I'd like to tell you about a town north of here called Highlands, New Jersey. And Highlands, as, as you'd guess by the name, is a hilly place. It's very elevated compared to the rest of the region. And it goes about 250 feet above New York Harbor. You can get a good view of the whole harbor from up there. On a clear day, you can see all the way to Manhattan. You can usually see the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. You can see the container ships, the cruise ships, all the commercial activity coming in and out of New York Harbor. And it's an interesting place to me because I normally think of New York as being kind of far away because for us, it's about an hour and a half or two hours. It's really a bit of a commitment to get to New York. If you're going to Brooklyn, it's even farther because you have to get the subway in New York. It just takes longer. So if you're looking at a transit map, a highway map, New York doesn't seem close, but there's a map in Highlands in a historic World War II battery that has a big 16 inch battleship gun in it. And it shows the range of the map shows the range of that gun. And it's 23 miles. And that gun from Highlands, New Jersey can fire a shot. Not anymore. The gun's not operational, but when it was operational, it could fire a shot all the way to Brooklyn. And that map, that military map from a bygone age, when you had to worry about a Nazi war fleet, maybe coming into New York Harbor, that map recontextualized the way I think about my area you know, Brooklyn feels far away because of the highways and the trains taking the long way around to get there, but it's really not far at all. So are there any maps that you have seen of your own hometown or an area you're familiar with that recontextualize the way you think about that area? I'd love to hear from you. I forgot what the sign-off is, so I'll see you later. So that's a really interesting
5: thing from Timothy about how our Psychological maps of places and distances are sometimes challenged when we think about how things are when they were the, the way the crow flies or the the way the uh, armaments drop, uh, and I think that's often the way that we have perceptions about places that are far away, when actually they're not really that far away, or you know places that are roots that are more familiar that just seem closer because you're more familiar with them, and I think. Um, travel time and familiarity really make a big difference when we think about our mental mapping and how close we feel to places would you say that's true royfield Uh,
3: absolutely i so i grew up in in birmingham so birmingham relatively big city in the uk you've never mentioned it no, I, I know, I know. I, I thought it was going to come as a surprise to many of our listeners, but there's a point to me mentioning Birmingham yet again, though Claire, before you before you jumped in, right? <laughs> so, um, so somebody who lived in a traditional urban city, this, the downtown, the city centre, is a core of work and entertainment, and then generally people live in the outside suburbs. Yeah. And my folks uh, were no different. So your commute to work would be, let's say, half an hour, forty-five minutes, whatever, and you factored that in as your mental mapping of the city. So, if you went wanted to go to the cinema of a Saturday night, Friday night, whatever, um, it was forty-five minutes, thirty-five minutes to get to the cinema. And I kind of realized that the, the mental mapping of time and space is really conditioned on three things, where where you work, rest and play. And I only realized that when I then moved uh, to Notting Hill in London. And I realized that for me, my commute to work was now walking distance. 10, 15 minutes walking. The cinema Mm. or restaurants, bars were another five minutes. And my world completely collapsed in on itself in terms of physical distance. So if somebody would say to me, uh, I'll meet you in Kensington or Chelsea, I'd be horrified. I'm like, wait on a minute. (laughs) That's really quite far. But it's because these three pivotal things where you work, rest and play were all massively condensed because I lived in an urban village. I didn't live in a in a, yeah. a traditional city. But all the things that I wanted, that, you, know, the, you know, to get my groceries, I could walk to go and get my groceries. I could walk to a restaurant. Um, my kids, um, it was a five-minute walk for them to get to school. Everything was just so close. So this idea of distance, time and space, is really important to how we kind of mentally mm-hmm. map anywhere. And and in America it's massively stretched out compared to the UK. People yeah. who live in rural areas will travel two and three hours for entertainment, which is something you'd never do in the UK. You know, and they commute some. Unless much it was
5: some really big things, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think where you've got people who are more used to having to travel further, um, like you say, that, that, that kind of space of of what your normal kind of stomping ground is it extends um but it's been really interesting sometimes when i go because i used to i used to work regionally i always used to always go sort of east from where i'm where i am now um and mm. there were a load of routes that were really familiar to me and i kind of knew exactly how long it took to get to peterborough or cambridge or norwich or south end or whatever um but that was all my patch but then you go the other way and it's actually no longer to go to birmingham <laughs> uh, Leicester or Nottingham than some of the areas in my patch but it felt really different and further because it was just not a familiar route and Mm. uh, I think that's often the case as well the routes that we are or the the the, the places that I visit family in I know exactly how far they are and what the routes are and um, you know we we sort of judge other distances in relation to some of those well-trodden paths.
2: Mm.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Familiarity does condense time. Uh, So now we have um, another call, and this is from a stalwart of ours. It's our Ken, and this man doesn't half like to get about a bit.
6: This is Ken McDonald. I'm at north 44 degrees, 16.302 minutes, and west longitude 110 degrees, 31.942 minutes, and exactly 9,762 feet above sea level, according to my GPS. I'm near the summit of Mount Sheridan in the Yellowstone National Park, hiking with my nephew and great-nephew. We started out from a base camp almost 3,000 feet below today in the backcountry on Hart Lake. This is beautiful country. I'm not sure. I don't think we're going to make it to the summit, which is a little over 10,000 feet, a little over 3,000 meters. But it's a snow field from here on. I I left Raleigh-Durham. It was 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and here I'm in snow. But it's still warm. I'm in a t-shirt. Down below, there are these thermal fields. There are these geysers and uh, and seeps coming up, and lots of it's it's a very different kind of forest than I'm used to, just because of that open areas with with steam coming up and boiling water. It's fascinating country, and high snow-capped peaks all around, and views now from here as, as far away as hey, what ranges are we looking at, Jim? It's my nephew. The Red Mountains? Looking at the there oh, the we're in the Red Mountains. Looking at the Ab, Absarocas, okay. A little bit at what's
1: called the Washburn
6: Range. And this whole area is going to blow up someday, probably, since I'm looking down on the caldera of a super volcano. But, you know, everything's temporary. <laughs> and right now, and for as long as it lasts, it's quite beautiful. Signing off, Ken McDonald in Yellowstone National Park. You know, I, I love this man.
3: It's like an on
6: the spot oh, reporter, we isn't it? love he? Ken.
5: He's like our little special guardian <laughs> angel. I just, he, everything uh-huh. he does is lovely.
3: Absolutely. Uh, absolutely, Ken. And um, uh, a beautiful, invocative post. Um, so, what is your favourite place, Claire? Oh, gosh. Um, to visit or stay?
5: I don't know. I, I mean, I would love to go back to granada because i've not been for it's nearly 20 years i moved away from spain and i just oh you've never mentioned
3: that you used to live in spain no, before no no
5: no never never mentioned that but i do i do visit. <laughs> so i would love to go back there um but I, I have to say that you know when um when we were traveling earlier in the year uh certainly places that i would uh love to revisit um Port Douglas in Australia being one of them. I just think it was just such a nice place to be. But then it's always easy to re- fondly reminisce about places where you were kind of on holiday and chilled out. And, um, you know, so it's, it, it's different places for different things in life, perhaps. And um, we probably remember more fondly places that we were kind of relaxed and a little bit out of the regular routine because it is different and special. So, uh, you know, you're, you're a well-traveled person. How do you narrow it down?
3: Hmm. I, I think first off, because I, you know, my carbon footprint is bad, though I'm trying to upset it. Um, I do think of places that I've traveled to. Um, and so I, I think of, you know, kind of holiday destinations for, for want of a better expression. Mm-hmm. So, my my experience of istanbul is seen through that lens you know i have never lived there so i don't know are they any good at you know taking that rubbish you know are the schools mm-hmm. any good i don't know all i do yeah. know is that if you want to go to a city and be wowed by the scale and by um its history and its setting istanbul is my favorite place you know it just knocks your socks off you just go you gasp quite literally you gasp when you get there you know it's a city of some 12 odd million people so it has a scale it has the bosporus which makes the thames look like a puddle um <laughs> and you can't believe that that is still the same city on the other side uh and then you have two thousand year old roman walls well, okay there's sixteen hundred year-old roman walls uh, and then you have the hagia sophia and then you have thrusting modern apartments uh mm. buildings next to victorian cobbled streets which are beautiful and then you have minarets everywhere like it's an assault of the uh, architectural senses and every other sense going and it's just teeming foot full of people so um istanbul as somebody who's traveled a bit amazing I don't know what it's like to live there um, and then places that I have spent a lot of time. So I, I almost come to the point where I've got to say that I almost do live in partly in Canada. I'm here here so often. Um, uh, Toronto is, um, is, is a great big city, which works. There's, there's no two ways about it and is clean. And, um, and I love San Francisco, but I'm starting to caveat it with a lot of its social problems. So the homeless problem, I don't think you can overlook, even though you can, you can physically love the layout and the architecture and the energy and the relative mildness of the weather of the Bay Area. But I'm starting to think that it's chronic homeless problem is such a moral issue that you can't really talk about all the wonderful things of San Francisco without giving that giving it a horrendous black mark because of that. But if the simple question is, um, places that I've been to, where do I like the most? Um, definitely 100% unqualified Istanbul.
5: Fair enough. Definitely a good endorsement.
3: Mm. I absolutely do recommend it because the other thing which I forgot to say is that they always say, you know, Istanbul, it's East meets West. And it absolutely is. And it's for all the reasons which I said before, you know, you get the churches with the minarets, you get um, Asia and Europe, you know, it is classically, classically, um, you know, at, at the edge of one continent and at the start of another
5: liminal space has done
3: <laughs> absolutely uh, we have to remind our listeners that to get onto the show what you have to do is go into mapcorner.space it's a funny url mapcorner.space uh, and hit that tab over on the right and uh, you can then record a voice note which then by the miracles of the internet ends up on our show eventually and uh, another thing which people can do of course is go onto facebook our Facebook group and become a member of that and join in uh, with the debate and conversation that goes on there, which is a, a very smooth link for me to say, What's been on Facebook, Claire?
5: Well, we've not recorded in a while. So there's been all sorts going on. Um, so absolutely recommend if you're not already in the Facebook group, uh, that's a place to go because uh, we have such a really lively community there that are posting maps and interesting kind of map-related things and travel things. It's just all been fantastic. Um, the Some of the ones that I really liked was um, the uh, Jennifer Prater posted around uh, a map which was a sort of multimedia map of Venice, um, which was quite timely Mm -hmm. because um, our friend uh, Witherspoon, Lonnie Behar, has also been in Venice and posted pictures that he saw of old maps and globes in venice itself so that was uh that was quite uh serendipitous um someone i feel i ought to mention is a newish member of our facebook group mark kavanagh uh now here is a man after the very much map corner nerdy heart because uh he's got Mm. the most phenomenal website where he has traveled the world and taken photos of transits uh, trains and transit maps and if transit maps transit systems are your thing mark kavanagh is your man um so he posted a link and um yes he's very much amongst friends here in map corner um a couple of ones that i thought was really interesting uh was uh sarah fiddler uh sent a map of i don't know how they got the data I must, must be available somewhere but um comparing Uh, Android and iPhone usage in Moscow, where you could see the parts of the city where people were better off and therefore more likely to have Apple devices. Um, And I just wondered where that data comes from, because I just think that would be a really, really interesting map to see on a kind of more, you know, more cities or national basis and see how that that looks, I think it works better at a very granular level, so in terms of a city level. But um, I thought that was quite an interesting new way of understanding a place and mapping a place is uh, kind of based on what operating system people are using, uh, which, you know, these days is a bit Mm. of a cultural marker for people. So, um, you know, it's the first time I've seen something like that. Um, And um, I think I just also put a a call in for the... um, the link that went to a, a fun-looking project, uh, which is a YouTube video from a guy called Paul Whitewick, who, um, with some friends and fellow enthusiasts, and we're back on transit maps here, they create recreated the London Tube map with human beings uh, in coloured T-shirts to represent the different coloured lines on the map. Uh, And everyone represented a different station and um, it just looked like a lot of fun uh, for some people to gather together in a park in coloured T-shirts and recreate um, a tube map for the benefit of a drone above. So um, it just, just shows, you know, just because you're a map nerd doesn't mean you have to sit alone in a room and you can go out and have fun with fellow map nerds too. <laughs>
2: um,
5: and then interestingly, uh, I don't know what this says about our group, but the, the the post that's had the most engagement, according to the metrics, is Stuart Arendelle's map around um, where... I think it was states in the UK in the U.S. around what was the main reason for weather fatalities. Uh, so you could see that obviously coastal areas, rip currents were a big thing. And then there were areas where people died from the cold, people died from the heat. Interesting places where there are states where someone died from the cold in one state and literally next door people mainly died from the heat. Um so that was that was quite an interesting one. I don't know what it says about our um, our community that this was the most uh, engaged with map and uh, uh, in terms of uh, people responding to it. Clearly, people like uh, a weather fatality or knowing about that. So that's our that's a quick summary of our Facebook group. But then yeah there's always stuff going up there people are posting there really regularly so and the numbers are going up and up and up in the membership so definitely a place to uh hang out with fellow map corner people
3: good 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 um venice you ever been to venice
5: i haven't it used to be when i was a kid it was like the place i wanted to go to and then i sort of went off off the Mm. idea so i mean i wouldn't turn it down if someone offered to whisk me away to venice um then you know i'm not going to say no but i'm not sure it's the top of my list anymore
3: are you is that an invitation for one of our listeners to uh <laughs> you know uh, yeah. buy you a ticket absolutely whisk you me know. away
5: to venice whatever
3: <laughs> are there any romantic overtones or are you just purely just like oh claire I just bought a ticket what type of travel would you like to go with Because Venice is supposed to be a romantic city, Yeah, it is
5: supposed to be romantic, isn't it? I mean, I was just interested in how it interacts with the water, really. Um, And I lived in Amsterdam briefly, and I guess that's a city that interacts with water in a really dynamic way, um, but only in the the central part. But, um, yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm not fussed about the romance, but I'd be interested to see how the city pans out.
3: (laughs) I went to Venice... um... It's going to be literally 10 years ago to the day. It was definitely 2009 and it was definitely kind of summer, end of summer, something like that. A friend of mine was getting married. She's Venetian. Uh, we'd met in, in the UK and then she, uh, proud Italian, proud Venetian. Uh, she had her wedding back home and married a lovely Aussie bloke. And uh, it was an amazing experience there's no two ways about it and we were not on the main island we we're on a secondary island it was actually where we were where our uh, where our room was i think it's a small bed and breakfast as i seem to remember um but the wedding took place on on the main main kind of like island there and it, it was just 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 phenomenal and the place is a working museum all of it, and we were there for a long weekend. Uh, I forget exactly, but let's say the wedding was on a Saturday, and we got there Thursday night, and then we left Sunday night. It was some something like that. So after the initial, you get there and you just see this place, and you and you can't really figure out how it truly works. Um, by the Sunday after you've done all the touristy bits, and you know, St. Mark's Piazza and all of that. You start to do uh, the further outlying bits,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and it's very sad. And it was the first time that I was really, really confronted by not just gentrification, but by a city uh, dying much more quickly than than, than we realise, and. Um, and this is all slightly off the, off the top of my head, so please, people, don't hold me to the to the absolute detail of what I am about to say. But the general thrust of this is right. So, the population of Venice was something like one hundred eighty thousand uh, by the mid nineteen sixties, and there is a massive flood. Uh, Venice has periodic floods. And that flood meant that um, a significant portion of the population had to leave, but it never came back. Um, and in part, it left because life on Venice, if you're trying to lead an ordinary life, is pretty hard, mm-hmm. i.e. if you've got to get furniture to your house it's got to go in a gondola. It, it needs to go on some form of riverboat and it needs to be winched up. So things which we just take for granted, you know, 99.9% of the population that live um, in more traditional cities are a trial there. So that happened. A, a, a significant proportion of the population never came back after the flooding. And a lot of that was young families. Uh, so then the school started to die. Um, then in the 1970s, as cheap airfare becomes a thing, um, the rich, or at least people who can afford it, now not necessarily rich by Western standards, but people who can afford it started to get second homes there. So then that pushes property prices up. Yeah. And then because they're not occupying these houses, essential services Slowly but surely, are dying. So already you've got um, a lack of school provision because families don't want to live there. Then you have property prices going up through the roof. So the neighbourhood that we stopped in, whose name I completely blank on, I had this conversation. I was told this by the barman, yeah. and he said, "Oh, this bar will probably lasts for another two or three years because there aren't uh, uh, the footfall of locals. The, the, the locals don't live here anymore." Yeah. Um. And the little row, the little row of shops, maybe there were 10 shops uh, and three of them, only three of them were were in use. And he said, this guy said, I'm a, I'm a proud Venetian, but this city is impossible. And basically it's a museum. And I was completely, utterly blindsided by all of this, I went to Venice for my for my friend's wedding and as a student of history i'd always wanted to go to venice it wasn't like you wasn't top of my list or anything like that but i i wanted to go you know i was excited to go to somewhere which is going to be truly unique and it is unique unesco have basically said that venice will become an empty city devoid of of real inhabitants by i think 2040 it's Every year, its population goes down. It will be the first theme park city in the world. So I've been to Venice. I'm not liking anybody that's that's been to Venice. It is a a truly wonderful and magical place to go. But it's at the sharp end of gentrification and then a peculiar set of circumstances, which mean that it's just not a practicable place for modern living. It just isn't. You can't bring up a family there easily. You know, the things that people might have put up with in the 19th century, 17th century, we're not prepared to put up with them now. And social services, civic services are just collapsing because there aren't people there yeah. to take them up. So, it's a it's a fascinating but actually quite a sad uh, place yeah. at, at the same time. And just to think, you know, in 20 years It'll be empty. There'll be nobody. Will truly live there. It'll all just be people's second and third homes, and there'll be tourists.
5: Yeah, well, you know there are parts of Cornwall not far off that now, isn't there? So <laughs> it's uh, it's a real issue anywhere that's sort of a victim of its own sort of tourist success.
3: Mm. Bits of Mayfair and Belgravia, yeah, of course, uh, are yeah. hollowing out in that way as Absolutely. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All righty. Uh, so uh, we've done the Facebook. Okay. How about the Twitter?
5: Okay, so Twitter is ever a little bit quieter than the Facebook group, which is always on the go, but there are some real, um, gems there. And, um, some of the ones that, uh, sort of caught my eye this time round were the, um, it's a sort of a video thread from our friend of the show, Simon Kumacker, which was around where was the largest city of the world at different times over the last three or four thousand years and it's really interesting to see how centers of population and how we might consider sort of you know greatest human civilizations if you like um you know start uh in that sort of you know Mesopotamian area where you'd expect and then kind of move out towards Europe and America and then across and obviously the most recent ones are very much showing how we, we live in a sort of, sort of Asian kind of uh, future in, in terms of uh, urban life. Uh, so that's quite an interesting one. It only takes a few seconds and you can sort of see sort of thousands of years of human history unru- unfold in front of your eyes in, in the context of where's the largest city in the world. So that's an interesting one to look at um and the uh, Catherine Rowan Jones shared another one there around one of the uh, sort of linguistic maps which I think you know always work really well on social media around what's the word for the bishop in chest in chess uh, and some of them were really peculiar like in some places they call it the elephant mm. or the turtle um I get the turtle because actually the piece looks a little bit like a turtle popping its head out. I guess. But um, yeah, interesting to see. So, real <laughs> differences in terms of, you know, some of it is versions of Bishop and some of it's completely different. Um, so, that's fun. But I think my favourite uh, of all the uh, Twitter threads was one uh, which had been sent through from, I think, Chris from at Outside Circle, which is uh, a, tr- a Twitter feed. Uh, it's a long thread, so you need to give it some time. Um, from Alan Folds, who has done a list of all the parliament buildings of all the nations of the world and rated the buildings. Oh, my God. He's a genius, though, because it's just such a good... It's such a tight <laughs> way to pass a bit of time is to sort of take a view on yeah. the uh, relative beauty of different parliament buildings and different styles. Um, I just thought it was such a it was such a warm hearted sort of dedicated thread that no one no one has ever asked for, someone who's just got it in their head to do, uh, and it's. De- I'm delighted to see it getting a bit of traction. So I wanted to give that one a special mention. It's not maps, but it is seats of parliament around the world and gives you a feel for some uh, elements of local architecture where that's been used. So uh, definitely recommend that one. And you can find it all at hashtag mapcorner where people have tagged those.
3: Ooh, right. So I, I, I think... That's just about the end of the show.
5: Indeed, Uh, although I have got my map fact of the show, if you'd like to hear it.
3: Well, that's what what I was queuing you up for. There's like a a drum roll sound effect (laughs) is behind me and uh, a whole load of exploding fireworks. So go for it, Claire. What is your map fact of the month?
5: Okay, my map fact this month is uh, from Craig Williams on Twitter, which is about a town in California, Corona. Uh, And Corona wasn't always called Corona. It was renamed in 1896 because the road layout included a round sort of shaped road in around the middle of it, uh, which looked like a corona on a map. Uh, and so it was just mm-hmm. renamed. It's the only place that we were aware of that's been renamed based on what the road system looked like on a map. I thought that was quite a niche map corner kind of thing. but so that's my fact Goodness. of the month.
3: So... Birmingham should be renamed a bloody mess then.
5: <laughs> well it's called sp- I mean, we've got Spaghetti Junction, which does look a bit like spaghetti. So, you know. Mm. I
3: I tell you after navigating the I don't even know what it's called, but uh, when when you get to Oakland, you go you travel over the bridge to San Francisco. Uh the the freeway system or motorway system there uh puts Spaghetti Junction to shame, mm. I'm telling you. Like, so I don't know what the hell you call that. It's like mega spaghetti. (laughs) Uh, That is truly an urban town planners, uh, wet dream uh, exploded. It's just like there's roads and slip roads going off here, there and everywhere. And just to connect onto something that um, I said to Dave, Dave Amos and I uh, did talk about was um, cities kind of expanding their freeway network and, uh in, in the u.s also in the uk to a, but to a much lesser degree but yeah. in, in the u.s and you could only have that massive explosion of uh freeway building and roads because uh the whether it was the it was the state government you know they decided to knock down poor neighborhoods to build them yeah you know so there's a reason why uh all of this stuff happens in oakland as opposed to San Francisco. You know, it's yeah. the poor of the of, of the two cities. And, of course, it was people of colour that were displaced to make uh, make way for the big, uh, you know, uh, network of, of roadways and stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But thank you for your map fact. I've also got a little bit of a fact. Do you want to hear my fact? Yeah, go on. Uh, ben Jacobs, who is a man who has a ferocious beard, but also quite ferocious intellect as well. And um, he's, he's quite witty will be uh joining us on map corner and he will uh do a little thing um about five minutes long seven minutes long each week telling us how towns and cities actually work because he works for i'm going to say it's providence rhode island for the city council there but he does clever things in that department and he's all about maps he deals with maps all day long so he will be joining the team, just doing a, a little bit of a segment where he uh, lifts the veil on uh, exactly how cities work and how planners go about doing their job all through maps and mapping, starting from the next episode. He's my kind of guy. What, do you want him to take you to Venice? <laughs>
5: <time>? <laughs> oh, he can show me a map of Venice.
3: all right folks this has been map corner uh remember you can email us by going on to mapcorner.space uh contact us there that way tell us about your experiences and your love of maps and then of course you go to mapcorner.space again and uh, hit that little red tab so it can hear your voice because this show would be not the internet ratings podcast blockbuster that it is without individual voices from all over planet earth and so it's goodbye from me and and goodbye from me